This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading this morning is found um, in John 13, verses 31 through 14.1, found in page 900 in your pew Bibles. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Amen. Good morning. Hey, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, before I jump in and pray and dive into the text this morning, I just want to orient you to all of the things that you found in your hand this morning as you came into the room. Uh, you should have gotten two packets of notes. Uh, the pretty one that has like color on it and is in weighted paper, um, that is an overview that our our preaching team put together to serve just as a framework for us as we're stepping into this series. So for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be in John chapter 14 to 16, which is often referred to as the upper room discourse. It's this beautiful uh, sermon that Jesus gives or teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples the night before his crucifixion to help orient them in the midst of the crisis that they're about to face. It's some of the most glorious and beautiful teaching in the scripture. And so we, we wanted you to have the, the introductory material that's helping frame out how we're thinking about this series. So that packet is uh, that information for you. Some, it has overviews. What's the purpose of the gospel of John? What are some of the main themes in this? The sermon outline as we're going to be preaching through it. And then even some recommended resources if you want to pick up some of those. The second thing you have in your hands are uh, teaching notes for today. Uh, this, this came a little bit last minute. We were in our, our uh, team meeting on Tuesday and I mentioned 
off, off hand a little bit uh, how I've gone back and forth with handing notes out uh, for quite some time. And the, uh, it was as if I put uh, a piece of raw meat on the table and a bunch of lions just started jumping on it. Uh, the, the affirmative response of the team was pretty overwhelming. And so we're going to give it a go, uh, see how it goes. Uh, the reason that you have these is I, I, I thought it'd be helpful for you to have more uh, scriptures there for you so you can follow up later if you so desire. If it's not helpful for you, you can throw it in the trash, or if you really don't like it, you can burn it or something later. Um, but uh, I hope it is helpful for some of you. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we'll just dive in together. Father, uh, we do come to you in the name of Jesus because of his finished work, his glorious life, death, and resurrection. Lord, and even as we heard read this morning that there is nothing for those of, of us who are in Christ, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from you. Just thank you for that truth this morning. Thank you that we are held firm in your care, in your hand, in your grasp. Thank you that there is no height or depth, nothing that can come, nothing that is present, Nothing in all of this created order that can snatch us away from you. We are secure. Thank you, Jesus. And this morning, I ask as we come to this text, I ask that the security that we have in Christ would be the framework from which we hear this truth, this exhortation that Jesus gives, this command that Jesus gives. I ask that we would not be frightened or worked up in our own soul, even as we hear Jesus instruct and exhort and call us to pursue establishing our stable reality in, in the truth of who he is. God, would you minister to us? Would you give us a spirit of revelation this morning? Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. God, would you allow us to have receptive hearts, responsive hearts this morning? We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So as I said, uh, John 13 to 17 is where we're going to be spending uh, the next 10 weeks together, Lord willing, as a church. And this is often referred to as the upper room discourse. And I think they are some of the most beautiful and glorious chapters in all of the scripture. There's, a, there's an old Scottish preacher whose sermons on this portion of scripture he calls the inner sanctuary. Uh, saints throughout history have referred to this teaching as the holy of holies, this glorious place where Jesus himself instructs the closest of his disciples, the 11 who have remained with him. What we heard read this morning, as, as we heard as he departed from the room, the he there is Judas. So Judas has left to go betray Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples on the eve of Jesus's crucifixion 
crucifixion, receive from him this wonderful and beautiful teaching that is meant to settle and instruct their hearts. As Jesus prepares for his own death, he draws them close and he shares with them truths intended to bring stability to their souls in the coming days. I want you to just think about this for a minute. Jesus knows what's in front of him. Jesus knows that in the next 24 hours, one of his closest friends is going to betray him over to the authorities. They're going to take him. They're going to beat him. They're going to flog him. They are going to mock him. They are going to torture him and hang him on a cross to his death. And in that moment, what does he do? He draws near to those who are closest to him and begins to instruct them on uh, how to have a steady heart in the midst of what they're about to walk through. Can you just see the tenderness of our Lord, of our Savior, that in the face of his own trouble and sorrow and affliction that awaits him, he doesn't... uh, push away the weight that is about to crash in on his disciples, but he comes close to them and begins to comfort and provide stability to their hearts in the midst of that. This speaks volumes about the glory of our Savior. Jesus knew that the events of the next 24 hours and the events of the next several months and years would create situational difficulty and pressures that would weigh on the hearts of his followers in such a way that they would be tempted to be weighed down or overwhelmed with sorrow, grief, despair, shame, if they were not oriented in the truth. One of the most difficult realities of walking through life in this world are all of the ways that our hearts are prone to become weighed down. Many people in this world long for or hope for or seek after some form of peace, but it's often elusive to us, unattainable to us, which leads a lot of people to give up hope, to give up uh, seeking after that, to give up reaching for it, uh, to try to find some sort of peace or comfort. But Jesus begins the upper room discourse with a profound command or an exhortation to us to not let our hearts be troubled, to not let our hearts be weighed down or overcome in the midst of facing the troubles of this world. This commandment is an invitation to walk in partnership with God's grace as Jesus promises to release the peace of God into the hearts of his followers. This is what we see laid out here. Just look at chapter 14, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, let your eyes move over to verse 27. Jesus is gonna give this exhortation again, but he's going to do so on the heels of a promise to give peace peace in the midst of uh, the, the, the reach to not let their hearts be overcome with trouble. Verse 27 in chapter 14, he says, peace 
I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we see here that this commandment is like a dynamic invitation and a promise given by Jesus to increasingly experience the peace of God in our lives in the face of all of the places that will experience the pressing of troubles in our life. Now, the fact that Jesus exhorts us to this, I want us to not miss this here. The fact that Jesus exhorts his disciples or commands his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, it means that there is something that he's inviting them into in partnership with him. this This is an invitation. This is a commandment. Jesus isn't saying simply, hey, I'm going to just override the temptation to be troubled when you're faced with hard circumstances. He doesn't say, hey, when you walk through troubled circumstances, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your response or how you engage it because everything's going to be okay. He actually says, hey, disciples, those who are following me, you are about to face severe crisis, severe hardship, severe unrest and uncertainty. And in the midst of that, I am inviting you to not let those circumstances overwhelm and weigh down your hearts. And then he gives the mechanism by which they are to partner with him in grace to not let their hearts be troubled. We'll get to that in a little while. So the experience of being weighed down by the troubles of this world is common to all people. The message that Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room is intended to equip us to overcome internally in the midst of crisis. Again, this is, we're going to get to this in a little while, but I think it's amazing that Jesus never promises us that our external circumstances will go away or the things that press in on us or the things that tempt us to become weighed down and pressed down will be removed. He never one time promises that. What he promises is that in the midst of that, there will be grace to have internal stability in our hearts, in our emotions, in the passions of our soul to experience the peace of God in the midst of that. So this whole section, this chapters 14 to 16, teach us and equip us to, be, to overcome internally in the midst of crisis, to walk in mature joy, and they are intended to protect our hearts from offense in the midst of this life. Okay, if you're following along, we're at Roman numeral two here. To rightly understand the nature of Jesus's exhortation and his invitation here, we must seek to understand what it means to have a troubled heart. So we have to start here, right? If Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, don't let your hearts be weighed down or overcome with despair and sorrow and uh, anguish, we have to ask the question, what is a troubled heart. What is a troubled heart? 
Now, it's important for us to see here that Jesus is not saying that the disciples are not to feel deeply in the midst of the hardships of this life. I want to point your attention to something. If you have your Bibles open, go just look back the page to John 13, verse 21. Jesus, as he is walking through the foot washing and the Passover meal, we see as he begins to talk about the reality that Judas is going to betray him, that Jesus himself is said to be troubled, right? So verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So what we see here is that Jesus is not telling the disciples to not feel deeply in the midst of hardship or in the midst of difficult circumstances or in the midst of the pressures that weigh them down. He's not saying, don't feel anything in that. Walk through with this kind of like comatose, uh, stoic disposition that doesn't really engage in the reality of life. What we have to deduce here is that if Jesus himself experienced trouble at the realities that were pressing down on them, and then he tells his disciples to not be troubled, that there is a holy type of unrest that our souls can experience, and there is an unholy type of unrest that our souls can experience. You see, Jesus's trouble was rooted in the reality of his great love, his commitment to God's purposes, his commitment to the ways that God's desires were going to be made known. And his trouble was the fact that there were people who did not align with God's desires, purposes, and plans. So his heart was unrestful. What he's calling the disciples to stand against or reach against in this exhortation is, we'll find in a minute, as he goes on to tell us how they're to respond, just as there is a holy unrest, there is an unholy unrest that is, we see, rooted in disbelief, that is rooted in wrong perceptions of God, God's character, God's purposes, God's plans, and because of that, allows the circumstances of the world to weigh down and press down upon our hearts. So being overwhelmed or weighed down means that we have this uh, fretful disposition within our hearts that's rooted in unbelief. Top of page two, to work, walk with a troubled heart then is to possess an unrenewed or worldly narrative that sees the world and our circumstances in a certain way. This often leads to the experience of being weighed down by emotions such as intense fear, anxiety, shame, bitterness, despair. I think it's powerful here. I, I, I want us to just note this as we jump in to this section of scripture. Jesus doesn't just say the common, what we get throughout much of the scripture, don't be afraid. 
right? He says something different than that. He says, don't let your hearts be overcome or troubled, fretful. There are more uh, mindsets and emotions that can press in on our hearts that Jesus is uh, speaking of here than just fear. He's speaking of, and we'll see in a little while, there's shame or bitterness or despair or sorrow that can weigh down our hearts and change the way that we uh, experience situations. So when we're faced with difficult circumstances in our lives, all of us possess certain reactions. And when I say reactions, I mean behaviors, responses, beliefs, narratives that come to our minds and our hearts. Here's a common one, okay? And all of us are going to go, don't say that. Uh, Because I don't want it said to me. Although the Lord, I feel like, is pushing his finger on this in my own life. Difficult circumstances. How many of us, the first place that we go One of the first reactions, behaviors that we have when we face hardships in this life is complaint, right? We face a situation and we begin to complain about it. And we do this from as little and insignificant things that we couldn't ever change like the weather. How often do we walk out and go, oh my goodness, it's so hot out here. Or man, the spring in the Midwest, I can't even believe it. I hate it. One day it's 85 degrees. The next day it's 32 degrees. There's like thunder hail happening one day and then the sun's out and then there's 75 mile an hour gusts. Like, and we complain, right? We run these patterns of behavior and how we are disposed to circumstances that I don't think we understand the effect they have on the what we think about, what we believe, our emotional makeup, what's really going on in our hearts. Now that's a insignificant, seemingly unimportant one. But we respond those ways because we think certain things or we believe certain things to be true. And we oftentimes don't even assess the patterns of behavior or belief or the narrative that we bring to something. And we wonder why our hearts are weighed down with these troubled emotions. We wonder why that is happening. These pathways are often shaped by our own selfishness, right? Like we want our way. We want our preference. We want the thing that we want uh, and we want it to happen now. We want it to happen quickly. We want it to be there uh, immediately. They're shaped by our stories, right? Like ways that we saw people around us when we were young engage difficulty and hardship. Those things uh, shaped parts of that in our, in our lives. And then we're shaped by the cultural narratives of our own time. It's not difficult to look around and see the weight of difficulty that is pressing in on the hearts of people in our, in our moment. We don't have to look far to see the effects of troubled hearts, right? That are expressed in the world. Yet many of us are less able to see the signposts of this in our own souls. Or we see them, right? We see this like intense 
weighed down heart that's fretful, doesn't have rest, doesn't have peace, that is steeped with bitterness or shame or uh, is weighed down in these things. We see them, but we excuse ourselves as having like a situation that's too unique or too difficult, or we won't, we won't connect it to these things that Jesus is talking about. So I want us to look at this as important because Jesus will go on later. If he begins the entirety of this sermon with this command, don't let your heart be troubled, you could in some ways say he bookends this in chapter 16, verse 1. And he says, I'm telling you all of these things. First, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he begins to saturate their hearts with new truth to stabilize them and keep them and hold them so their hearts aren't weighed down. Then later in 16.1, he comes along and he says, disciples, I'm telling you all these things so that you will not fall away, so that you won't be offended. I want you to see this. This matters. And the reason that we're going so slowly through this is because this matters. And the season we find ourselves in, in the world, I think the biggest questions that we need to be asking are, what does it look like to have a heart rooted and stabilized in the truth of who God is? his purposes, his plan, his gospel, his promises, and that in the midst of all the unrest and uncertainty and chaos that is around and is increasing, and more and more people have all sorts of opinions and narratives, and there's deception, and people's eyes are clouded, and their hearts are uh, weighed down, we need to ask the questions, What does it look like to have a heart that is steadfast in Christ Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm telling you all of these things so that when difficulties weigh down, when hardships come over you, you are not offended. Because a heart that is offended, and when I say offended, I mean we cannot make sense of why we are experiencing what we're experiencing. We aren't getting what we want or what we are experiencing and what we thought we wanted is different than the reality of where we are. That experience we see throughout the scripture, an offended heart is the seedbed for deception. It's actually the seedbed for deception. Jesus all the time is tying them together. And I just want this on the the forefront of our minds as we step into this season. Okay, so number three, the context. The many crises of the human experience. So Jesus lays out, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. And I want us to go, what were the disciples about to face that Jesus is warning them to not let their heart be troubled in the midst of. And I want us to then take that and go, oh my goodness, 
we continue to walk in similar realities. This is what it means to be a human waiting for Jesus to come back and make all things new. The crises are common to Jesus's followers throughout this age as we wait for him to return. Letter C, two days before the upper room discourse, Jesus had given his disciples an extensive teaching on what the times between his two comings would look like. He narrated for them that the times would be marked by increasing difficulty, wars, societal unrest, famine, pestilence, persecution, and deception. Now, the weight of these words would still be weighing on the disciples. Okay, two days before, I want you to just get this in your, in your mind. Jesus is walking through Jerusalem with the disciples. They're going, man, look at how amazing all these buildings are. Isn't this awesome? One day, and I imagine what they're doing because they believe Jesus is the Messiah and they still have not connected to the reality that he has to go and die, even though he's told them again and again and again and again. They're going, man, aren't these buildings amazing? Won't it be awesome when you finally push out all the Romans? Can I have that as my office? Can I have the corner spot in the temple complex? Can I be closest to where you're gonna be? Where are you gonna sit up your throne? What are you gonna, like, I think that's the conversation they're happening, having. And Jesus looks at them and goes, hey, not a single one of these stones is gonna stand on itself when I'm done here. This would be like if a group of people who thought they were going to be the rulers of a nation are walking through the capital and uh, talking about how amazing everything is and their leader goes, no, 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 you're not understanding. This entire place is going to be raised to the ground. That's heavy, right? They're, they're spinning. They're going, wait, wait, wait. Jesus is saying that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And now, as we heard read, Jesus is as clear as day as he has been going, I'm not going to be with you for very long. And your friend, the one that's walked with you for three years, the one you trust so much you let him watch over the money, he's going to betray us. Their hearts are overcome, right? But these are the things that Jesus said. Look at Matthew 24. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not alarmed. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Because of lawlessness will be, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So let me just give you rapid fire here. Eight crises that the disciples were about to walk through. And I think these are common to all of God's people. Now, we won't experience all of them at every moment. And there will be seasons where they increase and seasons where they settle. But these are eight that I I, I think you could find there. I think there's likely more, but here's eight really quickly. Devastating loss, right? They're about to lose 
their teacher, their friend, the one they have put their trust and hope in, that he is the Messiah, the one who is going to save them, they are going to be extremely sorrowful and grieved because of this loss. They experience real loss. Secondly, personal failure, right? They, Jesus has just told them, again, we heard it read, hey, every one of you is gonna deny me. And then Peter, the, the feisty one of the bunch, stands up and he goes, yeah, but not me. I'm with you to the end. Even if we have to die for this thing, I told you that I would come and fight for you. And we see, we see Peter put this on display as best as he can when he tries to cut off the, the servant's ear. He thinks we're getting ready to go into a fight. Jesus says, the fight is not with the Romans. And the way that I'm going about the fight, you are going to be so scandalized by, every one of you is going to deny me. Now, what is the crisis that comes upon us when we come face to face with our personal failure? Our hearts get weighed down in shame, right? Condemnation. We get weighed down with this overwhelming sense of guilt and sorrow that can trouble our hearts, right? So he's looking at Peter and saying, hey, Peter, when you come face to face with your absolute inadequacy, when you have all this bravado that you're going to stand up and go with me to the death, and then you cower in the face of a teenage girl around a fire, don't let your heart get weighed down. Don't let your heart get weighed down there. Third, betrayal. One of their closest friends is about to hand their teacher, their Lord, their hope, their friend over to the authorities. Now again, we all like to believe that Judas was walking around with some like sinister look on his face. He likely had like horns and a pitchfork and uh, easy to spot. Not the case right? They trusted this man so much they let him hold the money. He was the purse bearer for the crew. He was the treasurer of the board, right? He's not the guy that you think is going to backstab you. And what do you think their hearts are tempted with when this person who has walked with them. That's the point of the psalm that Jesus quotes over and over again. The one I shared my food with is the one that betrayed me. This isn't uh, somebody down the road. This isn't the enemy down the street. This isn't being written about in the local like paper that hates Christians. This is the person you sat across the table with you had into your home, you shared life with, you cried with, you wept with, you shared life with them. They betrayed them. What's, what's the temptation of their heart in that moment? Bitterness, rage, anger. Jesus says, hey, when you experience this, do not let your heart be troubled. 
Don't let it be weighed down. Don't be fretful. Do not have this anxious turmoil inside of you. Four, cultural and national unrest. We see this is part of Jesus's sermon a couple days before, marked by cultural upheaval, national upheaval. There will be wars, actual wars and rumors of wars. Rumors of wars, think about it this way. This is like the, um, the threat of war, right? You're always hearing like this country and this country are about to go to war together. We're unsure. It creates all this un- instability and uncertainty. There's persecution, the delay of God's promises. Again, these, these men have banked all of their life on the fact that they believe this man is about to liberate them from the Romans. He doesn't do it the way that they think he's going to. When God delays in his promises, we're actually faced with the temptation to become troubled and weighed down in our hearts. They knew this, right? And what I mean is they experienced this. This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, on the doorstep for you is experiencing discord between what you hoped would happen and what is actually going to happen. Do not let your heart be troubled. We see even John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest man born of a woman up to that point, Even John the Baptist, as he's sitting in a prison cell, is tempted toward offense. Jesus, when he sends his disciples, or John sends his disciples to Jesus and goes, hey, I'm sitting in this jail cell. You were supposed to be the one that delivered us all. What am I doing here? And Jesus goes, hey, rewrite how you think about this. All these things are happening just like the scripture said. Then he says this amazing word, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Blessed is the one whose heart is not scandalized with the way that God leads. Don't let your heart be troubled, he could say there. Number seven, we have unmet expectations that are both unnamed and unexamined often. Often we don't even know they exist until they don't get fulfilled. We want something and we don't get it. We see in James, James says that's the seedbed for anger and bitterness and offense in our own souls. We desire something. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to speak about it. We don't get it and we hate people for it. And then we have hope deferred. When we put our hope in things that do not materialize, our hearts become sick, the Proverbs said. So what's Jesus's answer? here. What's Jesus's answer? And I just want you to know this. I'm going to give a quick fly through of this this morning. This is what the next nine weeks are about. Jesus's answer is believe the truth. Believe the truth. Believe in God and believe in me. That's Jesus's answer. And then he goes on to unpack for two or three chapters, line on line, 
why you can believe in him and what is true, how he's accomplished that, what the end result is, what your future is, what your present is, what is true about you now in Christ. He begins to lay out for you. These are the truths that will stabilize you in the midst of a world where you are pressed down and, be, and tempted to become overwhelmed with grief and sorrow and bitterness and anger and shame and despair. When you are overcome there or tempted to be overcome there, here is the truth. Look at the truth. Believe the truth. Believe the truth. So the means that Jesus gives of obeying the command is to believe. Believe the truth about God and to believe the truth about Jesus that's in agreement with or alignment with his character, his heart, his plans, his promises, and his leadership. Jesus does not promise that we will overcome by telling us that we will be kept from difficult circumstances. Jesus doesn't say, Hey, don't let your heart be troubled. It's not going to get too hard. Hey, you're going to be, you're going to be kept from all that. Don't, don't, don't sweat it, guys. Hey, hey, don't, don't, don't let it even like touch your heart. It's going to be easy. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus actually front loads oftentimes just how hard it's going to be. And then he says, there are stabilizing truths that can sustain your soul in the midst of it. He doesn't promise the free heart will come by telling us that the troubles are going to stop anytime soon. He doesn't give us those, those promises immediately. At the end of this section, Jesus actually prays quite the opposite. He prays in John 17 that the disciples will be kept and protected through the hardships of this life, not removed from them. This is John 17, 15 to 17. I don't ask that you would take them out of the world. Do you hear that? Hey, things are about to get really hard for them. Jesus, in praying to his father, says, I'm not asking you to take them away from it. I'm not asking you to take them out of it. I am asking you uh, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus's answer, Jesus's response, Jesus's holy prayer for you and for me as we walk through the difficulty of life isn't, hey, make it easier. Make it easier so they get taken away from it. Give them all the things that they want. Make their life really cush and easy and awesome. He says, as they walk through the hardships of life, my friends that I've walked through are about to walk through difficulty, trial, tribulation, famine, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, betrayal, loss, God, would you let your truth cover them and establish them and keep them in that place? As they walk through it, will you root them in your truth, Father, is what Jesus prays. It's important for us. So how does he then invite us 
to experience this peace. He does so, so by calling us to believe. Top of page four, Jesus declares that the opposite of a troubled heart is pursued by the means of aligning our minds and our hearts to trust him in the midst of the hardships of this life. This is belief or confident trust. When our hearts are troubled, we are to respond by aligning our minds to agree with God's truth. I think of the psalm where the psalmist declares, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, right? This is what Jesus is saying. As you walk through the hardships of this life and your heart is tempted to be weighed down with the troubles of the world, with shame, with bitterness, with sorrow, with grief, with anxiety, with fear. When you experience that, trust in me. Not a hollow trust, not this like, well, it's all going to be okay. There's this like uh, uh, sentimental reality that we believe in. He says, orient your thoughts, what you think on, what you believe to be true, what you root yourself in, bring those and line them up with my truth. Line them up with who I am, who I've revealed myself to be, what I've declared to be true. When our hearts are troubled, we respond by aligning our minds to agree with God's truth. And over time, our emotions, you'll actually feel the transformation of this as we behold the truth of God's word. Paul exhorts the Romans to do it this way. He says, this is what happens when you renew your mind, right? Verses one and two of Romans 12, he, get, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world, meaning the patterns of thinking, the patterns of belief, the narratives that you would have about how you relate to something or the responses that are just so easy, right? Like everybody complains, everybody's this way. Like it's just the way that we do it. Paul says, don't be conformed to that way. Take your mind and by the grace of God, empowered by his spirit, ask him for the renewing of your mind that you might be transformed. The process of transformation is not merely about our minds, meaning it's not just having the right answers or having the right doctrine, but it does begin with knowing what God is like and who we are in Christ Jesus. We are transformed by partnering with God's grace in pursuing different ways of thinking, different ways of seeing, different ways of evaluating reality, how we engage the world or see the world. One of the things that I, I hope we have more time to talk about as we walk through this, but our emotions often follow where our minds go. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of like the answers that you can give on the test. I mean the patterns of thinking, you're faced with hardship and you go, I'm alone, nobody cares for me, nobody's watching out for me, this and this, therefore I have to go get it. That is a belief that will have effect on what you feel. 
What, what Jesus is inviting us to in this reality is when you are faced with the temptation to be troubled in your heart, align your thoughts, align your mind, align your, uh, what your beliefs with the truth that I have given you, that I have shown you. Jesus desires that we would, he would be our holy meditation. He longs that his person, his character, plans, work, and relationship with us would be the foundation stone on, our, on which our hearts are stabilized in the midst of the difficulties of this life. Now, the primary way we pursue this is by speaking and praying the truths of the word of God consistently in our lives. This isn't hollow. It's not just like, uh, uh, like a wishful thinking. We fill our minds with the word of God. And then in the places where these things come into us, when we walk through hardship, loss, difficulty, betrayal, when we feel the unrest of the world around us, when we feel the instability of our own circumstances or the pressures around us, in those places, we begin to pray and speak God's word, the word that he has revealed to us. And that's our hope after the next several weeks is to lay out the truths and really put a magnifying glass on them, so to speak, to go, what does Jesus invite us to believe when he says, don't let your heart be troubled? Believe these things. And he spells it out for us. And so we want to dig into those realities. But let me just give you a summary of them. I think you could summarize the upper room discourse the truth of it, the teaching of it, is that Jesus invites us to see that because of his work, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit, his family is now united with God. We have union with the triune God. This is the glory of the message of the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is declaring this to his followers and all of us who have come to know him by faith. They're invited to experience in this life a measure of deep and true communion with the triune God. To be welcomed into, his, uh, into this experience is to experience eternal life. Look at John 17, verse three. When Jesus starts his prayer, he says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? Your forgiveness of your sins, your justification, eternal uh, uh, peace. He doesn't say any of those things. All of those things are true and beautiful and amazing. Eternal life is what? Knowing God. Relationship with God, communion with God, fellowship with God. He says, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ. So Jesus declares that his people won't be left alone in the world. He is going to lay down his life in order that he would prepare a place for us in the Father's house. Because of this, access to eternal life comes through him and through him alone. Now to all of those who receive him by faith, he promises to send the gift of the spirit. 
Jesus promises that his followers will be joined to him. Believers now participate in the same type of intimate union that Jesus himself shares with his father. That's out of this world. And it's true. It is true. And we're going to dig into that. This is some of the most glorious exposition of life in God found in the scripture. But you could summarize it by saying that you now, if you are in Christ Jesus, the reason that you can pursue a heart that is not troubled is that you now participate in union with God. You participate in the life of God given to you because of Jesus Christ. This is your great and precious promise. And we can, by grace, receive that and ask God to renew our minds in accordance with that truth more and more in this life. And if you believe that, you're a Christian. I want to invite us this morning, as we come to the table, we're going to respond by coming and receiving communion together. And I want us this morning as well as we come and receive, I want us to just ask the Lord to set aside uh, this time for us. Like as we press into these truths, I want to ask the Lord that he would make us receptive to them. If the response is believe, right? Believe is how do we regularly reorient our minds and hearts around the truth? And we can't just muster ourselves into more belief, right? Like we can ask God, we can say, no, this is what's true about you. This is who you are. This is what you've done. This is how you've promised to be. But we have to ask the spirit of God to make the truth of God alive to us and us alive to it. So I'm going to ask that this morning, even as we come to the table. But if you are coming to the table this morning, the way we take uh, uh, communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, you dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware, uh, and we'll have servers up front and in the middle, up in the balconies, we have a gluten-free station to my right, your left. Uh, For any and all who put their faith in Jesus, you're welcome to come and celebrate this meal with us. If you're in this room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you not come and receive this. This is a meal that points to a reality. We would much rather you put your faith in the reality, the reality of Jesus Christ as the only hope, the only way, the only truth, the only life. But if that's not what you believe, we're actually really glad you're here this morning. We just ask that you not come and receive this meal with us. We have prayers in, on cards in the seat back in front of you that might help you uh, with what it would look like to engage God in prayer. Uh, but just stay in your seat and uh, receive in that way this morning. So I'm going to pray for us now. Would you all stand as we prepare to come to the table? the servers come forward, I'm just going to pray for us. And as we do each and every week, we have people in the room that would love to pray with and for you. 
We've got people up front. We've got people at the, at the doors usually that would love to stand with you. If there's places where, where your heart feels stirred or weighed down or troubled or you're just saying, yes, I, I, I want to I believe. I want to increase in, in my understanding and ask the Spirit to move there. We have people that would love to, to pray with you there. But Father, I, I, I ask you this morning as we come to the table, as we receive and we remember, Lord, I ask that you would make us receptive to your truth. Would you speak to us? God, we know there are so many things in this world that are um, that tempt us to be weighed down, to be overcome, to be pressed down in sorrow, in shame, in bitterness, in despair. God, I ask that this morning, by your spirit, you would take of the things that belong to you and that you would make them known to us, that you would stabilize our hearts this morning. God, you said that you are enough. You said that you will be for us all that we cannot be, all that we have fallen short of, you provide. And Lord Jesus, even as we look upon you and remember your broken body and your shed blood, would you remind us that you have prepared a way for us through your broken body and your shed blood to come into fellowship with you, that we can live with you. And you even promise in the scriptures that you will come and dine with us. God, would you come as we remember this morning, as we take this meal, would you by your spirit come and dine with us, nourish us, stabilize us, secure us in your hand, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.